The following sermon was delivered on Sunday, September 26, 2021, at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation in Andover by the Reverend Callie Fire. The title of the sermon is Draw the Circle Wide. Here begins the sermon. Draw the circle wide, draw it wider still. Let this be our song, no one stands alone. Standing side by side, draw the circle, draw the circle wide. These opening words uh, by Gordon Light and set to music by Mark Miller are the refrain to an eponymous congregational song of Anglican and Episcopal origin. During my seminary internship, this refrain was developed as a regular worship element to follow the sharing of joys and concerns. So I have some fond associations to it. And it is fitting for today. Drawing the circle wide can be a warm and obvious idea. It is so obvious there is actually common resistance to the idea of even drawing the circle at all. Why, it's asked, why invite division and separation? We are called to love everyone with compassion, right? The idea is rooted in the golden rule, and that is that we love and support others as we are hope to be supported and loved by ourselves in return. Everything, what goes around comes around, right? And as a covenanted faith tradition, we as Unitarian Universalists look to the first of our principles as our own understanding of the golden rule. And I'm sure that you all know by how much I preach on inherent worth and dignity that it, it happens to be the favorite of my principles, of our principles for me. And yet, and yet, all of us are also acutely aware of its challenges. It can at times be the most trying and exasperating of our UU values as well. Because what happens to that obvious warmth and understanding the idea of love your neighbor as yourself when you were watching the news or we are trying to engage with someone on social media or sometimes just looking out the window at those neighbors. Loving some of our neighbors is, well, it's just hard sometimes. And the state of things now we find ourselves in definitely in those times. Tensions between neighbors with differing opinions, opinions about everything, are, at, um, are stretched to the limit. Those tensions are just so taut. What's happening? Where are the opportunities for compassion, for civility, for dialogue? There's rarely anymore an opportunity to even say, we agree to disagree. We seem to be stuck in this loop of my way or no way, I'm right, you're wrong. And this isn't new. Novelist Zadie Smith reminds us that individual citizens are eternally plural. They have within them the full range of behavioral possibilities. They are like complex musical scores from which certain melodies can be teased and others can be suppressed or ignored completely. And that depends in part on who is conducting. At this moment, all over the world, and most recently here in America, the conductors have had only the meanest and most banal melodies in mind. But there is no place on the planet where these melodies have not been played before. Those of us who remember, too, a finer music 
must now try to play it and encourage others if we can to sing along. Last Sunday, I had the opportunity to preach for Union Community Church, a UCC congregation way up north in the very beautiful village of Bartlett, New Hampshire, which is almost two hours north of me, which I, and I'm another hour north of many of you. Um, their lectionary readings for the day lent themselves to this theme that we have been preaching this month of possibility. And I offered them a glimpse of our very universalist rooted aspect of faith, our inherent worth and dignity, our first principle. So through this lens of the golden rule, we might understand then that this circle of dividing the strength of a united people is a motivation of fear rather than perpetrated by a wickedness as, or as it's written in scripture, by, fostered by a covenant with death. There, there is a passage in the Wisdom of Solomon that reads, for they reasoned unsoundly saying to themselves, short and sorrowful is our life and there is no remedy when a life comes to its end and no one has been known to return from Hades. And this sounds to me much more like a motivation of fear, doesn't it? That those persecuting others in their community are orienting from this idea of life is short we don't know what's gonna happen after we die. All we know is we've never seen our loved ones again. So what do we have to lose except to test the faith and the safety of others? When we don't understand something, especially something profound and crucial, fear is a very common and very legitimate human response. And there is a great deal of confusion and unknown in our world right now. There is a lot of fear, therefore, and there is a lot of polarization that kind of goes together. Even those of us seeking to draw the circle wider might even be finding ourselves asking, why do we bother? This is not easy. As much as we wish to support all the things and all the people, we come back to those pesky limited resources. And I'm talking about spiritual and emotional resources as much as tangible physical ones. Ever more frequently, we find ourselves directly engaging with others who do not share our opinions, too often operating from deep-rooted fear, deeply set in actually intentionally opposing our opinions. And those interactions are becoming increasingly contentious. In these moments, we can easily begin to lose our energy. We feel far too small for the work at hand, which begins to feel like tilting at windmills. And then in those moments, it can be very, very easy to tend to what and who we know, to turn inward, to tend to ourselves, because don't we know we need that right now also? But if we're not careful, this can be where we start to slide into complacency. After all, we are still doing good work in the world, we, but we're sticking close to home. We're just choosing to do good for those people we know and that we're comfortable with, people who will appreciate what we have to offer. So I wanna bring us back to that infamous first principle again for a moment. The inherent worth and dignity of every person, of every person every person.
So this is where it gets exasperating, the every part. And I get it. There are times when I find myself thinking we have tried so hard. We have been rejected again and again. We have bent over backwards for them. You know, they deserve what they get, kind of. It's karma, right? I don't imagine that I'm alone in that frustration, even if it's just for a moment. I'm going to check my screen, right? Am I not alone? Am I alone? <laughs> um, but then when we're doing that, are we not affirming the circle that divides us? Now, to be sure, I want to be clear, this inherent worth and dignity is, as one of my dear ministry colleagues um, tells this, this is not a suicide pact. Our first principle is not a suicide pact. Thank you, Reverend Amy. Um, legitimately, when there is real harm perpetrated and when it is intended, that is a different situation and that is not what I'm talking about here. While people still have inherent worth and dignity, their actions do not. We must know and name the boundaries of safety for ourselves and for our communities, and most especially for those who are at risk or vulnerable or on the margins who are persistently persecuted. This means being very clear about what harm is. And we must also know what the mess we are feeling, when that is really harm or when it is the discomfort of our own vulnerability. And, must, and might we explore the possibility of what might be there if we linger just a moment longer in the vulnerability. Last October, I spoke about the idea of deep canvassing, and I think it's worth revisiting here. Ben Mathis encourages us to listen in a way that allows us to hear the biography, not the ideology. When someone has a point of view we find to be difficult to understand, disagreeable, even outright offensive, try to look to the set of circumstances that that person had experienced, which resulted in their point of view. Get their story, the biography behind the ideology, and you'll open up to real possibility of understanding and understanding that transcends disagreement. So when you find yourself in a disagreement, just ask one question. Will you tell me your story? I'd love to know how you came to this point of view. I know what you're thinking, but I did not say it was easy. I actually remember saying this is not easy, but it is beneficial. Research indicates a deep canvassing, just 10 minutes of empathetic listening and reflecting about someone's emotionally impacted story can reduce prejudice for three months, three whole months, and isn't real communication the thing that we feel like we're lacking these days? So by taking the time to hear someone's story and reflect back to them, our own, maybe common threads that might be in there, we begin to soften the edges of that circle that separates us. Now, about this circle, and why do we draw it to begin with? So a moral circle can be defined as a breadth of moral concern that a person has for others. But so in other words, the moral circle describes who we feel is worthy of our concern, who should be included in our considerations. 
Our circles have been expanding throughout history as a society. And we see this in the examples of the civil rights and Black Lives Matter movements, gay rights, the LGBTQ movement. However, contrary to the idea that we should just resist creating this circle to begin with, it is actually innate in our human nature to do so. In his work, The Expanding Circle, Peter Singer argues that altruism begins with a genetically based drive to protect one's kin and community members. Over time, it has developed now into a consciously chosen ethic with an expanding circle of moral concern. Drawing on philosophy and evolutionary psychology, however, he notes that the human ethics cannot be explained by biology alone. Our human ethics cannot be explained by our relations, our appearance, by our genetics. Rather, it is our capacity for reasoning that makes moral progress possible. I'm gonna repeat that. It is our capacity for reasoning that makes moral progress possible. So studies in psychology and ethics have shown that characteristics such as increased empathy, compassion, and creativity are associated with a greater likelihood that individuals will expand their moral circles. Our pre-existing preconceptions, perceptions rather, of another person or another social group may also influence how much we will or will not expand our moral circles. Circles are created to protect those we love and care about and it's shown that we are willing to be expansive for others who we might be ambivalent about. We are unsure, we're curious, but for those who we find, um, those who we are strictly opposed to, we create smaller circles. For those we do not find similarity or familiar, familiarity with, we are less likely to be even open to the possibility of softening or expanding that circle. So is this where deep canvassing might create openings for us? Ultimately, the creation of categorizing and labeling each other is a genetic human disposition and who we include or not relies on strongly on seeing ourselves or at least part of ourselves in the other person. This then is our vulnerability. It is a risk to hold our own ideas and our own voice and thoughts and words in balance so that we might listen to the biography of someone with whom we don't agree. And is it not an even greater risk to, to allow the space to see them as ourselves? The faceless, nameless they, those people, conspiracy theorists, conservatives, liberals, the unvaccinated, the vaccinated, the left, the right. It is so easy to toss epithets when there are no faces and no names, and especially without the presence of loved ones. This is also the message of the gospel reading that they had at the UCC in Bartlett last weekend. In the book of Mark, and later again we see in Matthew, the teacher Jesus took a child and embrace the child as a demonstration of the greatest commandment of the Christian scriptures. And the greatest is love. And Jesus states, whoever embraces this child embraces also me and the one who sent me. 
This is that inherent worth and dignity. It is our call to action. How to love within our human context of dividing and creating hierarchy, our penchant for ranking systems, which is genetic for us and other. Jesus knows this is our innate behavior in response to challenge. The humanness of Jesus allows him to see this as our, as our genetic instinct. Whether that challenge that we face be from fear or rejection or from some other way that we are made to feel uncomfortable, vulnerable. So Jesus locates himself and as such God, the one who sent me, within the most vulnerable, within a child. In as much as you have done this, fed, clothed, whatever, to the least of these you have done so to me. This is our instruction manual. We are to find the face of God within the least among us. We are to recognize and affirm the inherent worth and dignity, the human value of the least among us. According to our ranking systems, which means those who cause us to throw up our hands and say, you have tried me, you deserve what you get. There is no use talking to because haven't we now, in those exasperations, placed them beneath us? What is really at the root of what calls us then, I submit, is love. Our faith is rooted in our love for those around us, those we care about, our families, our neighbors in need, and ultimately, love for ourselves as well. But my friends, we are called to aspirational work. When we gather as a community of faith, that faith should challenge us to reach toward the best versions of ourselves, a challenge that invites us into opportunities to stretch where and how we are vulnerable. Faith is a living trust between ourselves and the God of our understanding, whoever and however and whatever that appears to us. Active participation in our faith requires that we be vulnerable, to risk being not perfect, to risk not always getting it right, to risk trying and continuously trying to in response to a changing world around us, to risk showing up. Embracing a vulnerable God within the face of who we embrace in that image is our personal act of vulnerability reflected back to God and to ourselves, to the Messiah within each of us. It is a reciprocal participation of faith.